In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm looking at border preclearance and the longest flights in the world. Then, for the main segment, I'll be starting a two-part series on seat selection. Welcome to episode 23 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. For the main segment of this episode, I'm going to talk about seat selection, and I actually have so much to cover that it's been divided into two parts. This episode will be the first of a two-part series on seat selection, and the next episode of Flying Smarter is going to have the second part. Throughout the series, I'll cover a bunch of things to know and consider when it comes to seat selection, ranging from how to learn about what's offered on your flight, to whether or not you should pay for seat selection, to how you might not end up getting the seat that you selected, and much, much more. As usual though, let's start off with some air travel questions. What is preclearance? Preclearance is an arrangement between the governments of two countries that allow border inspection functions for one country to be conducted in another country prior to the departure of people and goods. In the context of air travel, what this means is that preclearance is an arrangement where passengers and cargo on an international flight go through customs and immigration processes in the country of origin before the flight leaves. Such an arrangement involves customs and immigration officials from the destination country to be located in the origin country where they can clear or deny the admission of goods and people into the destination country. Now, it might be easiest to understand using an example, so let's look at what is perhaps one of the best known examples of preclearance, which is in the context of the United States. United States Customs and Border Protection, also known as USCBP, has preclearance operations at around 15 or so airports outside of the US. Most of these are located at Canadian airports, but there are also four airports in the Caribbean, as well as Dublin Airport and Shannon Airport in Ireland, and Abu Dhabi International Airport in the United Arab Emirates. USCBP has officers and facilities at these airports, and passengers go through American border controls before getting on their plane bound for the United States. What does this mean for passengers? Well, a major benefit of US preclearance for passengers is that they arrive as domestic travelers upon their arrival to the US. Not only does this mean that arriving passengers don't have to wait in lines for customs and immigration, but it also means that connecting passengers don't have to go through security again. Along with USCBP facilities, airports with US preclearance have dedicated security checkpoints that screen passengers to American requirements. For example, passengers going through a preclearance security checkpoint at Canadian airports are required to remove their shoes, which as I discussed in episode 18, is a requirement that is fairly unique to the United States. Once these passengers get to the US though, they can simply leave the terminal or go to their connecting gate as if they arrived on a domestic flight. Now why does preclearance exist? Well for the country conducting preclearance inspections like the US, it provides more time for border officers to make informed decisions and prevent threats from entering the country. Despite the fact that the United States is generally responsible for paying staffing and some of the operational costs at preclearance facilities, Preclearance saves the American government millions of dollars in detention and processing costs each year. 
airlines and airports also benefit greatly from U.S. preclearance. For example, preclearance has made it possible for airlines to offer flights from Canadian cities to American airports that don't have customs and immigration facilities. These routes, such as Air Canada's numerous flights into New York's LaGuardia Airport, would not be possible without preclearance. There are other similar arrangements around the world, but they generally are for rail and marine travel, and not air travel. The United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France have an arrangement called juxtaposed controls that allows border controls on certain routes across the English Channel to occur before boarding a train or a ferry instead of upon arrival. At Hong Kong's West Kowloon Railway Station, mainland Chinese immigration checks are conducted before passengers board trains. Similarly, at Woodlands Train Checkpoint in Malaysia, passengers traveling from Malaysia to Singapore go through customs and immigration processes before boarding the train in Malaysia. What is the longest flight in the world? As of the time of publication of this episode, the longest non-stopped scheduled passenger route is Singapore Airlines' service between New York's JFK Airport and Singapore Changi Airport. The route has a distance of around 15,350 kilometers, which is around 9,500 miles, and a westbound flying time of almost 19 hours. The eastbound flying time is a little bit shorter. In a close second place is Singapore Airlines' similar service between Newark Airport and Singapore, with a similar distance and flying time. Both of these routes are operated by the Airbus A350-900 ULR, or ultra-long range. In third place is Qantas's route between Perth Airport in Australia and London Heathrow in the United Kingdom at around 14,500 kilometers or 9,000 miles and approximately 17 and a half hours of flying time. This route is operated by the Boeing 787-9 and can be considered an example of a quote-unquote long, thin route that the Boeing 787 is great for. I talk more about this in episode 9, which is all about why people love the Boeing 787 Dreamliner, so go check that out if you haven't done so already. Other super long non-stop flights include United Airlines' service between Houston and Sydney, Delta's service between Atlanta and Johannesburg in South Africa, and Emirates' route between Dubai and Los Angeles. Historically, the longest scheduled passenger non-stop flight was Air Tahiti Nui's service from Papeete in French Polynesia to Paris-Charles de Gaulle Airport, at a distance slightly greater than the current flights between New York and Singapore. As I discussed in episode 20, there's a difference between non-stop and direct flights, with the main difference being that direct flights can include stops. So if we look at the longest direct flight, it's the one between Sydney, Australia and London Heathrow, with a stop in Singapore. This route is operated by both British Airways and Qantas, and clocks in at approximately 17,000 kilometers or 10,500 miles, and has a westbound scheduled duration of around 22 hours. The longest ever commercial non-stop flight with paying passengers was a one-time non-scheduled charter flight operated by Swiss company Comlux. On March 28, 2021, it flew a Boeing 787-8 from Seoul in South Korea to Buenos Aires in Argentina, covering a distance of around 19,500 kilometers or 12,000 miles in a whopping 20 hours and 19 minutes.
I really love talking about air travel and bringing Flying Smarter to you, but I could really use your help. If you enjoy listening to Flying Smarter and have been able to learn from the podcast, please help me out by leaving a 5-star review on your podcast app. It helps grow the audience as well as convince guests to come on to share their knowledge and insights with you. If you're listening on a platform that allows you to do so, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave a positive 5-star review for the podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Did you know that a plane once stayed in the air for 64 days? From December 4th, 1958 to February 7th, 1959, two people flew a small general aviation aircraft over the skies of Nevada, Arizona, and California. Robert Tim and John Cook took off from Las Vegas in an attempt to break the flight endurance record. It was part of a publicity stunt for the Hacienda Hotel in Las Vegas. In exchange for prominently displaying Hacienda Hotel branding on the side of the Cessna 172 aircraft, the hotel provided $100,000 to fund the flight. The plane was modified to include a mattress, mechanisms to replace the oil while in flight, extra fuel capacity, and more. Now listen to this. The plane was refueled twice a day by flying low and close to the ground and matching the speed of a truck before connecting the refueling line. As the days went by, the engine became weaker as it became clogged with carbon. Therefore, after 64 days, 22 hours, and 19 minutes, the plane touched back down in Las Vegas, setting the record for the longest flight in history, a record which it still holds today. Where you sit on a plane can have a big impact on your air travel experience. Whether you're looking to avoid that dreaded middle seat, sit with your travel companion, or save money, there are a lot of things to consider when it comes to seat selection. In fact, there's so much to talk about that I'm splitting it over two episodes. In the main segments for this episode and episode 24, I want to help flush out factors to consider when it comes to seat selection and hopefully provide you with some insights and considerations to help you get a desirable seat on your next flight. In this two-part series, I'll go over things like whether or not you should pay for a seat, how you should pick a seat that is right for you, where you can get information on different seats, and much more. Let's start with talking about whether or not you should select a seat in advance. I'll actually modify this question a bit by focusing on whether or not you should pay for selecting a seat in advance. If you're able to select a seat for free, then generally speaking, definitely go for it. The exception to this is if you're trying to score a free upgrade to a better seat that you would otherwise have to pay for, but I'll talk more about that later. If you're fortunate enough to have the option to pick a seat for free in advance, then it's usually a good idea to take advantage of that. Airlines have a tendency to charge fees for all sorts of things these days, and seat selection is no exception. If you're flying in a premium cabin or paying full fares in the higher fare classes, then there's a good chance that you can pick a seat for free. And on some airlines, like Alaska Airlines and Japan Airlines, you generally don't have to pay for seat selection at all in most cases. However, most airlines will have at least some situations where you'll have to shell out some money if you want to pick your seat in advance. The fees can vary a lot too though, even within the same airline. 
if you want to pick a seat in advance, you can be paying as little as a few dollars, euros, or pounds with airlines like JetBlue or Ryanair, while if you fly with others like Frontier or Air Canada, you could pay upwards of 40 US dollars. Now, I keep saying the term picking a seat in advance, and I want to take a minute to talk about what that means. When airlines say that there is a seat for advanced seat selection, they're generally referring to seat selection when you book or before you check in. When you check in, whether it's online or at the airport, you traditionally would get to select your seat for free. This is still the case in many situations, but if you're flying on an ultra-low-cost carrier or have a basic economy fare, the airline will often assign you a seat at check-in, and then you'll have to pay to change it. That being said, if you aren't in a situation where you're flying on an ultra-low-cost carrier or have bought a basic economy ticket, chances are you will be able to select your seat at check-in for no additional cost. As I've alluded to, different airlines have different fees and policies around seat selection, so it's important to know the policies and fees for your specific situation. Airline websites are generally pretty good at telling you when you have to pay for a seat and when it's free. So should you pay for advanced seat selection? Well, if you have a very particular reason for wanting a very specific seat or type of seat, then for sure. If you absolutely want to have a window seat and are willing to pay $20 for it, then that's a valuable proposition for you. If you have a tight connection and really want to be near the front of the plane so you can deboard earlier, then it might be worth paying to secure a seat in the first few rows of the cabin. If you have more flexibility though, there are also some good reasons that you should save the money and skip paying for seat selection. If you check in right when online check-in opens for your flight, which in most cases is 24 hours before your departure time, you will probably have a pretty good selection of seats to choose from. This is because you will be the first ones to be picking a seat out of all of those who haven't paid to do so in advance. If you're traveling with others, checking in right at the 24-hour mark will mean that you are fairly likely to be able to get seats together. If you're flying in a fare class or with an airline that'll make you pay for changing the assigned seat at check-in, checking in early will still increase your chances of getting seated with your travel companions because there are more available seats. Keep in mind that for this to work best though, you should do it right when check-in opens because waiting even an extra few hours can mean that lots of other passengers have had the chance to check in and select seats before you do. On Southwest Airlines, where they don't have assigned seating and instead have an open seating system where everyone gets assigned a boarding group and a position, checking in 24 hours in advance to secure a good boarding position is especially important since boarding groups are assigned on a first-come, first-served basis upon check-in. You also have the option of paying to secure an earlier boarding position with Southwest. What you should definitely not do is not select a seat in advance and then wait to either check in online fairly close to the departure time or check in at the airport. First of all, this means that your seat options will be most limited. Perhaps the most dangerous thing about waiting to select your seat though exists with overbooked flights. As I discussed in the first portion of episode 12, some airlines will overbook their flights knowing that a certain number of passengers are likely to not show up for a given flight. Let's say a plane has 100 seats, but the airline has intentionally overbooked and has booked 110 passengers. After 100 people have checked in and selected their seats, the last 10 people to check in will get a message or a note on their boarding pass indicating that their seat will be assigned at the gate. 
Now, getting a message like that doesn't necessarily mean that your flight is overbooked, as some airlines will do that for basic economy tickets, so if you see that on your boarding pass, you don't necessarily have to immediately panic. However, if you don't have an assigned seat on your boarding pass, and the airline starts involuntarily bumping passengers for whatever reason, chances are you and your fellow passengers without seat assignments will be first. Considering the convenience of checking in online and on your phone these days, there's no reason not to do so and get yourself a seat if you have that option. One quick side note, you are never required to pay for a seat. Even on ultra-low-cost carriers, you cannot pay and let them assign you a seat at check-in or at the gate. The airline's website might make it seem like you have to select a seat or keep pushing you to pay to select a seat, but there will be some way to skip that option. Airlines will try to get you to pay for selecting a seat to increase their revenue, and you might see pop-ups and reminder emails, but if you really don't want to pay, you don't actually have to. Now let's start on the nitty-gritty of actually picking a seat, and let's start with when you're booking a flight. When we look at our flight options, we usually consider things like price, connections, and timing. Aircraft type and seats can also be one of these considerations as well. Now when I say seat here, I'm referring to the physical product that the airline provides rather than where you're seated on the plane. It likely isn't as important of a consideration as the others I've mentioned like price, connections, flight time, and schedule, but if you have a lot of flexibility or you have multiple similar flight options that you're trying to pick from, you can consider the types of seats that are available. For example, if you're flying from Vancouver to Toronto in Canada, you have over 20 flights per day to choose from. On Air Canada alone, four to six different types of planes are flown on the route in a typical day around the time of publication of this episode. The economy class seats on board Air Canada's Airbus A320 and A321 aircraft, which are used on this route, have older seats dating from the late 2000s and early 2010s, and these have a fairly dated and slow in-flight entertainment system. Other aircraft serving the route, like their Boeing 777s and 787s, have newer seats and better in-flight entertainment systems with larger, more responsive screens and more entertainment options. On the flip side, these newer cabins have slightly narrower seats, and that's just on Air Canada. Competitors like WestJet, Flair, and Air Transat all have different seating products. Or, let's say you're flying in business class from New York JFK to Los Angeles. This is one of the most competitive premium markets in the United States. Most airlines offer live flat business class seats on this route, but of course, each airline has different business class products depending on what they've installed and depending on the aircraft type. For example, around the time of publication of this episode, Delta has been flying wide-body Boeing 767 aircraft between New York JFK and Los Angeles, where all their seats offer direct aisle access, whereas others, like United and JetBlue, use narrow-body planes with a 2-2 configuration, meaning that window seats don't have direct aisle access. Of course, there are many other differences, but I'm just using that as an example. Chances are, things like timing and price will be the main priorities when you're searching for flight options, but the seat is something that you can consider when you're choosing which flight to book if you're willing to do a bit of research and have the flexibility or have multiple similar options. Just keep in mind that there is always the possibility that the airline will change the aircraft type 
between the time that you book and when your actual flight happens. I'll talk a bit more about that in part two. That's it for part one of seat selection. The next episode will be part two, where I'll look at things like how to get information on the type of plane you're flying on, how seat selection actually works, how to learn more about your seat options, and much more. I've got lots of great examples, helpful tips, and warnings coming up, so stay tuned for all that. If you're enjoying Flying Smarter, please take a minute to leave a 5-star review for the show if you're listening on a platform that allows you to do so, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods. It helps convince prospective listeners and guests, and I would really appreciate your help. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. Music